Welcome back to another DSLR Film New Podcast. Tonight, I am here with Devin. It's Devin, correct? Correct. That is correct. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Devin. Well, I've been uh, just fascinated with the DSLR movement. I was one of those filmmakers that started to jump on when things started to get cheap with uh, uh, T2I and whatnot. Of course, doing videography business, the DVX100B was the main course that I really started to learn on. So I never really got uh, accustomed to advanced techniques of camera work and equipment until uh, later this year where I've started working with Reds and Blackmagic and several other very popular cameras. But I've been fascinated by film for years. And ever since high school, I've been making my own films, making my own projects and just trying to grow as a, a storyteller and a director, as cheesy as that says, says about me. So... Uh, right now, mostly these days, I'm working on producing and doing music videos and other small projects, but I do have two features that are hopefully in the works, as you know, these things take uh, a lot know, of time, take a lot of time and rarely ever actually pan out. So I'm hedging my bets by working on multiple feature projects with different kinds of people. So, uh, but I'm always fascinated with technology. I love reading up on where sensors are going and where cameras are going and the innovations that uh, different companies bring to the marketplace. So I've just, I've always been an active reader of blogs and what's going on. And that's what I do most of my days. If I'm not editing and I'm not shooting, I'm reading about camera work and tutorials and different techniques to produce better video. That's awesome, man. What is the camera in your bag right now? Uh, I, I, right now I'm running dual system with both a black magic pocket camera as well as the GH three. I've been looking at the GH four, uh, and the price point is beautiful right now for doing 4k. You really get two cameras in one. I can set up a medium shot and get a close up shot at the same time. And I can tell that's going to save me time when I'm working on corporate videos, uh, and other projects like that. I don't like the look of the Panasonic series and I may be alone in saying that, but it does look video. -y. It does take me a lot of work in post to make it look filmic, but that's what I've got the black magic pocket for is that, uh, that film grain in that camera looks great the way that it should look, you know, closer to kind of a film re kind of a look to it. And those two cameras as kind of monstrosities, they have to, because you have to run dual systems and do a few other things. Uh, they really, the GH3 is really a workhorse. The preamps on it sound great. Everything on it works great. And that's what I've been tuned with mostly, but I've been trying to get away from that and get more towards into bigger projects where a camera rental is in the budget. So the, this last year I've been doing a bunch of C100 and C300 work because that guy is just a beast at run and gun documentary work. Man, I had the complete opposite experience with both of those. I sold my <laughs> um hated the c100 least favorite camera i've ever owned same with the c300 i did not like really? yeah really? I, I had lots of grain issues um i had to do a lot of that mm -hmm. uh, black uh black calibration balance thing right. um when i would go in and out of hot and cold environments it was all over the place and i couldn't get the 300 and the 100 to match up as far as white balance goes you set the k value to what you want and like one still looks different than the other in post and you can't figure out what the heck is going on just all kinds of like wacky 
you know you know what that's fair that's fair i'm not gonna say that those aren't issues with the cameras uh for me i guess it's just being spoiled by having like proper hdsdi out proper vector scope and bars and other things that are really critical for doing uh doing it right in pre-production and during shooting as opposed to trying to fix a bunch of crap in post so i guess me coming from a heavy dslr workflow a c300 seems like a total package uh because it actually provides all the professional things that you really need to speed up your workflow i understand what you're saying it's not the best one out there i'd really like to uh work more with that new sony camera that came out that eng style what's it called the uh, are you FS- talking about the fs 700 or the fs7 i think the fs7 the one that just came out that people are bragging about is so amazing and it comes with that eng shoulder mount with the yeah, arm both that of comes them out are, of it. are pretty sexy and you also had i believe was it the fs100 that was the kind of weird box form factor unit that was a terrible look i mean sony makes some great sensors and some great hardware but the ergonomics of that oh thing, man i've shot with one one day that was obnoxious i can't believe that uh, as long as you I never leave a tripod they're sweet but otherwise they are a pain in the butt right How are you supposed to use that kind of monitor when you're handheld? It doesn't make any sense. I know. Um, Okay, so moving on from camera griping here, uh, let's go ahead and, and dive right into the news articles here. Uh, first up, we've got the Photographer.com reports that the Canon Senior Managing Director of Image Communications Business Division has confirmed the existence of a high megapixel DSLR. Uh, Canon's also expressed some interest in possibly releasing a high megapixel compatible EF lens series to work with the new possible camera in the future. They're looking at 50 megapixels on this thing. Do you think you really need 50 megapixels in your next uh, DSLR? I, I think that those are isolated cases where you need 50. I mean, coming from a video background, no, it's not necessary because 4K is the latest and greatest. And until we start looking at 8K, there's no point in looking at anything past 4K. And that's, you know, several years off. But I think that the 50 megapixel for stills is still uh, not worth it unless you're doing special applications. I could see it becoming really important when you're doing special effects work, when you're trying to acquire assets and things like that. Better resolution is never a downside. But in general, photography and stuff like that, dealing with files that are going to be that big, that intensive to work on and stuff like that, uh, you look at the costs and balances here. And unless you're trying to do like that special photo they did, that was what I think like 90 megapixels that they did of the State of the Union, where you could zoom in and see everybody's face. Unless you're doing some kind of special thing like that, it doesn't seem necessary because in most cases, you could just take multiple photos of a situation and stitch them together and post. You already have the option also of a high megapixel uh, camera that's called the Nikon D810. Um, That's a 46 megapixel sensor. And, uh, you know, as much as I uh, like Canon and as much as I own a lot of Canon glass, um, I will say that Nikon's lenses do resolve a little bit better and enough so that uh, 46 megapixels is not an issue. And if you go above and beyond that, do you really do you want to be in a DSLR or are you starting to look towards maybe a, a medium format? Right. That's I think that that would be a better way to take it. The medium format to take digital into medium format rather is exactly where I think uh, people would like to go in photography. Something like that makes sense to me. And if you're going to have a 50 megapixel medium format sensor, that makes sense to me. Um, with the way that the I see the photography world, not that I'm much of a photographer myself, so I, I'm not a working professional necessarily in photography, but the way that I've been using these cameras and I see them work, I, I thought that like the megapixel race was over and we were actually looking more at you know color uh, resolution and more things like that of 
creating accurate images and less about how many megapixels we throw in the camera. It really does seem like marketing hype. And I feel like, especially with Canon, them saying, hey, we need some new glass. I've seen their glass work on all kinds of different cameras, all kinds of different sensors, and it always resolves amazingly. And it's always better than anything else out there. And when you compare it to like the kind of glass that people say this is necessary if you're doing medium format or full format cameras, uh, the Canon glass seems to stand up to that glass as well. So I don't, I, I think it is a bit of marketing. I think that it is a bit of Canon because you look at how they've treated the C100 and other cameras where they just cripple uh, <laughs> cameras in order, in order to make, you know, in order to do business, which Absolutely. I don't blame them for doing business. But as a filmmaker, you, uh, you got to look at where's my money going and how, it, how is this best serving me? Uh, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Canon is like, I'm sure it will be sharper glass. Will it be able to be detected by people of being sharper glass? I think even in pixel peeping tests, I doubt a new sensor or a new lens lineup is going to look that much better. Well, and if you let uh, Canon work on a new lens lineup, uh, think about lenses like the uh, Canon 35mm f1.4. That's been rumored to be upgraded for, what, four, maybe five years now? And it's still a plastic-sized L glass. You know, you, you we have not yeah. seen anything new for that. Um, and you have other lenses like uh, the EOS M, which has only, what, two, maybe three lenses total in the last three years. If that's all they can produce in that time, and a few, like, F4 to F5.6 zooms for consumer-grade cameras, uh, how are they going to find time to I- produce a brand-new line of everything-you-need EF lenses? This is very true, and I think that the heart of the issue is that Canon works harder and spends more time, uh, possibly maybe too much time on their marketing than necessarily the hardware. Because as you said, and I agree with you, the, the Nikon glass tends to bring in more contrast. It tends to be sharper, and I think that that really shows that, uh, you know, not that Nikon isn't known for you know, screwing over consumers in a few ways, like the D90. I've got a D90 right now. They said, hey, we're going to do 1080p in the D90, and it never came. They say, well, you're just going to have to buy a new camera. It's not like any one of them is a saint, but I still feel like a lot of them uh, are looking at the marketing and everything else. I think at the end of the day, for the mid-range to low-end consumers of filmmaking and photography and stuff like that, they're just going to pass it off because they're going to say it's not worth it. And I wouldn't be surprised if professionals also just don't end up picking the glass because it's not worth it. I think that the Canon Cine line is also one of those things that this is great glass, but for the price, we can also find other great glass that doesn't say Canon on it. And without your electronics package in it, there's no point in choosing you over somebody else with this Cine glass. Well, I will say their Cine glass is, as far as cinema glass goes, is really affordable. I mean, you can buy an entire kit for like seven or eight thousand. And I'm talking three primes, maybe four primes and a power zoom. And I know when you compare it to the Zeiss, it looks affordable. Yeah. And you look at some of the other stuff that's out there and you can spend easily 60 or 70,000 on uh, cinema glass. Um, The price of Canon cinema glass is almost put it from a rental option to a possible buy option for uh, some DIPs who in the past would only ever rent stuff. You know, I'm not saying that like there aren't other options out there, but as far as cinema, 
what glass goes where you don't have to worry about any uh, slop in the focus ring. They have built-in gears ready to go. They generate the XML data and send it straight to the camera for your distance focus and all that information, especially if you're doing like 3D. They're right. pretty nice. Uh, you know, maybe I'm like thinking wrong, but no, 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 no. I, I can't afford right. one, They're- but I still <laughs> like to use them whenever I get a chance. It is stellar glass. I don't, I don't deny that at all. I'm just saying that some of it feels like the entire thing is set up as a marketing campaign of, hey, use our Canon cameras so they're Canon glass, and before you know it, our Canon software in order to get the best image possible. <laughs> and most professionals in the industry say, hey, I need your crap to work with some other people's crap in order to make my production the way I need it done. You know what I'm saying? So right now, it's not a problem, but I, I think that a lot of stuff that we're going to see coming this year is going to be marketing because consumers haven't reached 4K yet. And anything past that just really feels like marketing at this point. I know that the technical applications of why higher resolution is better, but when you look at how many times those are actually used, uh, besides the professionals who need that extra room to do what they need to do, who need a Red Dragon sensor and 8K and everything else going on, you know as well as I do, 90% of the time, that isn't necessary. There's places where it is, and you'll rent it. But in terms of owning a camera, which I feel like consumers owning equipment is the main moneymaker for Canon, those kind of things are not solutions yet. And I think that Canon needs to take a look at their consumer base and say, hey, we need to start looking at making better cameras for our consumers that work better and do more of what they want, kind of like what Panasonic's doing right now. Listen to the customer. Okay. Yeah, listen to the customer. Customers say, hey, we want 4K. Panasonic goes, here's a 4K DSLR, you know, internal recording. No, it's not raw, but they listen to the consumers and the consumers say, hey, we'd rather have 4K than raw. And I think a lot of people would agree with that because I know I'm plenty of people who bought black magic going oh it's raw and then never use the raw exactly because it's such well also because it's very uh painful process and adds a lot of work to something that sometimes is just them shooting a few takes Um, yeah if you're not at a post house then it's not necessary i went ahead and threw a little bit of information into the show notes here uh just so that you kind of have an example of of what the megapixels really mean uh 700 or 720p video is about one megapixel 1080p is roughly two megapixel uh 4k footage is about 8.8 megapixel and 8k footage is roughly uh, 33 megapixel so just thinking about that uh, 33 megapixel for 8k that means that a 50 megapixel sensor would have uh what 40 35 percent ish roughly over uh an 8 an 8k video frame so you're really downscaling there from uh, 50 megs down to 1080p or i would hope if they release a camera with that much resolution that they would at least give us a 4k code act inside and i feel like that that wouldn't happen first off i from a technical perspective see two problems with that trying to do 4k on a 50 megapixel sensor the way that canon's done it in the past is always produce tons of aliasing as well as rolling shutter and if the sensors get smaller and they get further apart of the sampling uh because you know the down sampling isn't anything complicated because it needs to be done on the fly i feel like trying to pull 4k out of a 5 megapixel sensor is going to produce images that just aren't going to be that sharp and i could be wrong they could come up with some kind of genius engine and cpu that's going to sit there and cram the 
this thing together and downsample it and it'll look beautiful. But I'm saying with today's technology, what I see is that the further you try to downsample and mold things like that, the, the more aliasing you get, the more people complain about contrast and sharpness and things like that, and the more muddy the situation gets. Hence why when Panasonic decides to do 4K on their GH4, they just crop the sensor in. They could desample, but they know that that's going to lose sharpness and lose detail, and they're up there trying to compete with ENG-style 4K. So they just left it pixel for pixel to get the best quality out of the sensor. So while I do think that a 50-megapixel DSLR will probably have the CPU power now to start talking about 4K video, I feel like it's too late. People are looking away from it, and they're looking at proper video cameras that are going to give them the options they need. It's not like the DSLR is going to have an add-on like Panasonic has for doing time code or doing HDSDI out or anything like that, that a lot of consumers, or at least uh, filmmakers, are looking to well, do. Well, now, hold on, though. That's, that adapter <laughs> for the GH4 is kind of a catch-22. They're like, hey, guys, come out here and buy this $1,500 upgrade for your camera, and you'll be good to go. But what they don't tell you is that that has a four-pin power connector. So first, you're going to need like an Anton Bauer uh, power pack of some sort in order to run mm. the thing. Second, you have SDI out, so you're going to need devices that are compatible with that. You're going to need to be able to yeah. mount the dang thing. So now <laughs> you're talking about a rig. And by the time you get all the accessories that makes that handy, um, you've actually added like three or $4,000 to the GH4 instead of, you know, just 1500 and at that point, at three, or at, well, what six six K I get, mm-hmm. think gets you an FS seven hundred, and eight K gets you an FS seven. So then, why would you even go to get the uh, Panasonic uh, GH four when you could go get one of these higher end cameras that already has everything you need built into it? You know what I mean? And that's a valid argument, but my counterpoint is going to be that uh, you get both worlds. I understand it's not perfect and it's a bit of a hack together job, but it's the kind of thing that if you already have support for HDSDI out, you probably have Anton Bauer V-mounts lying around. Like if you're in this kind of situation where this is what you're doing, uh, a lot of this equipment and a lot of this rigging and stuff like that's already going to be available to you. The indie, I'm out with my friends making a film kind of a thing is not going to be interested in HDSDI out or any of these other features and now they can shoot 4K. Or the guy who's a local news station, they don't have to worry about 4K, but let's say they go to an NBA game and their whole system is HDSDI. Hey, I can buy a power adapter, throw it on a tripod, and bam, I can pump out HDSCI to these people. And now this camera is fulfilling many roles in being flexible as well as still being small. Uh, the Sony series still isn't a small or light camera. So I think with all that combined, it shows flexibility. It's not a perfect solution, but they're trying to build a flexible solution because that's where the money is. Find a camera that fits a lot of holes because there is no perfect camera. That brings us right into the next subject in uh, the rundown here. The announcement of, at NAB last year of the 2014 Atomic Shogun 4K HDMI SDI recorder. Uh, it's finally starting to hit the streets. Looks like the price is going to be about $2,000, give or take a, a few bucks. And that's a pretty pricey upgrade for the GH4 and the Sony A7S. You do get ProRes and DNX HD built in at at, uh, 422, but we're talking about five hours roughly of 4K recording on a two terabyte, um, 2.5 millimeter uh, hard drive. What do you think of that? Uh, I think that this, for people who love uh, the 7AS, uh, A7S, I think that this is a bit of a wake up call that 
look, you always said, hey, this camera will do it if we get these other add-ons. And this is a wake-up call being like, those other add-ons are expensive. You're basically <laughs> buying a second half to your camera. Um, I think that uh, for a GH4 and stuff like that, there's going to be a few situations where this kind of stuff is necessary. But I feel like, like you said, after you do the add-ons and you do the power for it and everything else, uh, you know, something like this is not going to seem that expensive when you're already spending 6k or 8k on your gear uh i don't think that a lot of this is necessary i think that for sure um dnx hd is a format that people should be moving into it's an industry standard if you're working for uh cbs uh because i've done some of the work for cbs and some of the work for other large uh networks they like their dnx hd because they're all using avid systems with nitrous engines and what have you uh prores is a nice at home format but it's dated and really it could be done better and dnx is the new answer to that and adobe realizes it they're the ones who are bringing on dnx and it's nice to see an external recorder that's finally opening up and saying hey we'll give you dnx hd uh because i'd much rather be working in that format than prores i've had too many sketchy things with uh black levels and gamma curves and stuff like that by working through QuickTime containers so i appreciate seeing that i think honestly the price is really good for what it is uh when you shop around for proper external recorders and you know that the shogun is going to be a brilliant screen as well and it's going to have proper scopes and everything else on it it seems like a great way to turn your little dslr into feeling like more of a proper camera like the sony f-series or something like that where you get all these pro connections and dual recording and things like that that are important i'm sorry when you're on set you need to be recording to two mediums you don't know what's going to happen and that's always insurance that if somebody's paying you eight thousand dollars to come out for a gig you better be recording it in two media locations just to cover your butt well something to think about with the shogun as well is that it's a 1080p ips monitor it's what seven inches i believe and we're talking a... I've heard it's gorgeous. I've heard it's a gorgeous yeah, monitor. Yeah, I saw it at uh, NAB last year, and it was definitely nice to look at. It, it's gotten to the point now where uh, the Atomos gear is... The monitor screens were, like, crappy at the beginning, but now they're starting to almost compete with what you get from small HD and, and things like that. The other thing is this has uh, built-in support for uh, the Spider um, color calibration system, so you can plug it in via USB hang it over the top of your monitor and color calibrate it um, right there on set without any issue. That is another three or $400 device. I believe the spider four is about two fifty, and the spider three pro is like uh 200. A lot of, a lot of editors have spiders though. Um, but just seeing that feature for people who own spider, I feel like that's icing on the cake. I mean, I know some people are X, right? I like to the X, right? Equipment over spider as well. Uh, but it's things like that, the show that they want this to be a proper monitor and, and that kind of thinking into their product tells me that, look, $2,000, you're not just buying a 4K recorder, you're also buying a 4K monitor. And that in itself is a stellar deal that I think is really shaping up the industry because normally your monitors for 4K run you, what, maybe 8K or something like that? You rent them because they're so flipping expensive. Well, I will say I still am a proponent of having a camera record its own. Um, I'm slightly irritated when advertising campaigns come out for something like the Sony a7S that says, hey, look at me. I could possibly do 4K with this extra pack. <laughs> Even the uh, Sony FS7 and FS700, those are both cameras that don't internally record 4K. You have to have 
some type of external device in order to record 4K. While the GH4 has its weaknesses, at least it supports H.265 4K record or H.264 4K recording internally. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case with uh, these other cameras that are even more expensive. And it's really frustrating that you buy something and it can't even record the possible recording format that it's supposed to be able to be capable of. And a $2,000 upgrade, while that's um, not horribly expensive, if you think about it in terms of, of indie filmmakers' budget for cameras, that's a second camera or maybe even two more oh, yeah. cameras depending on what you're looking at. You, you mentioned the Pocket earlier. That's a, what, I think it's like $800 now, brand new. Yeah. So you could buy two of those plus squeeze in maybe a lens and a couple of high-end memory cards to take care of that footage and you still haven't quite got to what you're looking at for the Shogun and then on top of that now uh, Blackmagic is offering 4K and 3K cameras that are in the $2,000 price range so that's right up against what you're getting with the Shogun here and you're paying about the same for just a monitor I completely I do agree with you I look at this for bigger sets where you're working with a team of people for the indie filmmaker, an external recorder doesn't make any sense. And even low end videographers, an external recorder doesn't make that much sense. At least one at that price. Um, for I, and I think too, that if it's not recording internally, I feel like that's a problem with, uh, with workflow. Um, there's a reason why the reds and the things like that, do what they do and they cost the money they do and i can't imagine being on set where every minute counts and working with a camera that uses external recording is the only option for getting 4k or whatever quality you're looking to get out of it i do think that all that marketing hype really (laughs) needs to stop not that it ever will but that uh that kind of leading the consumer on being like hey this is a 4k system when it's not really a 4k system you need an add-on and then when you hit record you need to hit record over there and like with the gh4 or uh well they have cleaned some of that up though um now that the uh, control via hdmi is supported on these devices um it does send the record button signal from the camera directly to the device i know but I know. I've been, I've been the, familiar with those systems, but you know, you got to worry about power now for a second system. Now you're running a big V mount. Well, and left. HDMI as a connector medium is also <laughs> yeah. uh, atrocious the, device. The I mean, yeah, exactly. And now you look at cameras like the uh, A7S, that's got a, a micro HDMI port on it, which is even flimsier than an HDMI port, which is already flimsy to begin with. People pull it's out the terrible. cable, they, you know, bend it. Uh, I know SDI isn't completely unbreakable, but at least it's a twist lock system so when you put your connector on there it's connected and the only it's way gonna it's going to stay there yeah the only way it's coming off is if you break something or you know the cable gets completely cut through or something mm-hmm. like that you know so that's a lot more solid um uh, thomas has done some good jobs or some good things though with their recording system in that it will actually close mm-hmm. files if you pull the hdmi cable which is is pretty nice right. um you right. know instead of corrupting an entire video shoot if you yank the cable and you just lose what files. was exactly yeah. you just lose what what was filmed after that you don't lose the stuff that was recorded beforehand so you know at least they're I, doing that 
Yeah, I can attest to that, especially on DSLRs like your Canon and your Panasonics. Uh, if you get a disconnection issue with the HDMI, it'll just stop recording. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not ex- you're externally recording it, say you're internally recording it, if your HDMI monitor gets unplugged from the camera, the camera just resets and stops the recording, uh, which if nobody realizes that happens, you lost a ton of footage. So there, there's so much I hate about the HDMI format, but unfortunately it's here to stay just because it's so ambiguous in the consumer marketplace. One last thing before we jump topics here, um, there has been a lot of interest in the Shogun simply for its XLR inputs. Uh, some people are actually looking at this as sort of a sound device replacement for um onset use you know sound devices makes those those beautiful uh xlr recorders mm-hmm. but they also have built-in monitors and everything else well now you have something like the shogun that's even smaller and more petite than than those units and it has 4k internal recording and it has two xlr inputs uh now you have mm-hmm. some extra audio features as well as controls that you can get in a two thousand dollar unit instead of, i think the sound devices are what uh three thousand or four thousand dollars brand new Easily, easily. I I agree with that, but I think that's more icing on the cake. Uh, In a production, in a large production where you're with a team, I've never met a sound guy who enjoys working with sound from a camera as opposed to with his own equipment. Um, But for doing sync audio and stuff like that, it's nice. And for that one-man band who's out doing his videography project or doing a wedding or something like that, this can become an advantage. Uh, But for me, I don't see it as a benefit because, like I said, if you're doing dual systems because you're running insurance on the footage you're shooting because you can only capture it once, you're going to have that sound going into the camera anyways uh, be, or whatever other recording media you're doing because you need two sets. I wouldn't have audio just on one of my recordings. So to each their own, I think that's just icing on the cake. I think that's a nice feature, but I don't see it becoming critical to anyone's particular workflow. Now, continuing on with the uh, whole 4K assessment here, 4kshooter.net has posted a video from Vimeo user Gallo Galcia, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, probably not, mm-hmm. uh, demonstrating the use of Adobe Camera Raw with the GH4 4K video. Um, if you've done raw shooting on a 5D Mark III, or in your case, the uh, Blackmagic camera, you're probably used to using Adobe Camera Raw to handle your DNG files. Uh, did you take a look at this video at all? I did, absolutely. Uh, it was it was definitely interesting as a different way of doing workflow. The problem comes, though, is that DaVinci works very well, and DaVinci is free for all intents and purposes. Uh, it's, it's something that I keep in my back pocket because it's not like you'll always have DaVinci around and things like that, and it's definitely an interesting way of creating an all-Adobe workflow, which is important. Sometimes you end up at a workstation and all they have is Adobe. So... Um, it's a very fascinating way of like working with quote unquote raw like flat images inside a Premiere and working at them from there by processing each image individually as a batch file. It's something I haven't thought of and I wish I did. Uh, but I think that this is really what um, th- this just shows that people are being super innovative. People are really looking at these tools outside of the context in which the tools were made to create better workflows that work for them. And I think that this is genius what he's done here and i know i'll probably be using it on a shoot i'm kind of taking it from the other side i watched him do it and i thought man that is so clunky and that is is so tough and and i'm I'm thinking about well this isn't raw though this is just 4k footage but you're dealing with all the extra mouse clicks that you would almost have to deal Mm. with if you were working with raw and so you're taking your 4k footage and it seemed like he was adding quite a bit of sharpness to it and doing some other things that he probably could have done in camera with Without having to go through this mess 
And, I did, well, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't agree with all the color correction and the how he was messing with the contrast in there. But it's cool to know but, you can do it. But this looks like something you would almost have to script in order to process your stuff properly. And even if you scripted it, one size does not all fit for any kind of footage that you collect. And you probably know this if you've shot any raw footage. Yeah, what it what it comes to me as being useful is I see a few shots where I'm going to have high contrast, and something like this is going to become in handy for trying to pull back. Uh, those highlights. I mean, highlights can't be recovered with the GH4 because it is not shooting raw. You're, you know, you're shooting 8-bit. Uh, but uh, the way that Photoshop deals with kind of that curve into the highlights, it kind of smoothly rolls off and it you can make it look really pleasant in a way that normally you don't have that. Like, you you, I, you can do it in Premiere, but it's one of those things that you'd, I'd fight with Premiere for. Yeah, a bit, I don't do any grading in, in Premiere other than, you know, a, a minor color curve now and again. Um, even speed grade. Uh, you know, I, I've been trying to make myself use it more because I pay for an Adobe license, but right. it's... It almost seems like speed grade isn't quite there yet as compared to, you know, something like DaVinci. And uh, I don't know when it's going to get there, but it is also nice that it's completely in the Adobe world where I can export out and bring it back in again. Or it shows up on my timeline, like in addition, when you're working on audio, you just do something and like your premiere timeline is automatically updated and ready to roll. And so. And and Adobe's made quite a few strides. I mean, where. where their color correction is uh, now is way better than it was. As opposed to a year ago, oh my gosh, it's miles ahead. Now I've actually used it on a few productions. Of course, I still enjoy DaVinci. The interface is great and stuff like that. I mean, it is a hard learning curve, but once you get accustomed to it, there's a lot of control and it becomes very quick and easy to get what you need done. And I feel like speed grade is getting there. Maybe it just needs another year or something like that, but uh, that integration is going to make a killer once they get the formula right. You know, their main thing is just to get it out there and figure out how people want to use speed grade before they figure it out. But I feel like they're getting there. You give it a year and it's going to be giving, uh, you know, DaVinci a run for its money just because the workflow between DaVinci and Adobe seems archaic. It seems like you're back working with After Effects and Final Cut Pro, you know, so... Now, speaking of getting there, um, Apple Aperture and iPhoto users will no longer be getting their updates to their programs, uh, in which case Lightroom 5.7 has now offered a plugin that will allow you to easily import your Aperture and iPhoto libraries so that you can now become one with Adobe. Uh, <laughs> do you use Lightroom as is? Yeah, actually, I do. I use Lightroom flat out. Uh, there's, there's a few, I've used Lightrooms on... Mac, but I tell you, uh, not that I've ever been a fan of Bridge or iPhoto either. Um, I've never cared about that kind of um, integration at all. I just use Lightroom as is, open up the photos and do it that way. And maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe a lot of other people like using it with their photo catalog services and stuff like that. But for me, I look at what the software can do, and this just seems like no big deal. And I feel like that's why it's not a big deal that Apple no longer supports these updates, because very few of their consumers actually seem to care. Well, it seems like uh, the photo processing field is kind of getting getting smaller and smaller for players. You know, now that Apple's not doing it, Lightroom's the major one. Nikon, of course, mm-hmm. has their own uh, Nikkor-branded 
you know, option and Canon has DPP, but I don't know anyone who uses those. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I moved away from DPP when I was like 12 and, you know, <laughs> after that, I realized that I also didn't need this diaper anymore. No, it's, um, it's a, it's a weird thing. Like is Adobe going to just corner the market on this? Uh, is there any other company that's making any sort of, you know, photo processing app that's available for all kinds of raw formats? I, I think that there's room in the space for somebody to spring up. I don't think anyone's willing to heed the call. The The way that Adobe already with Photoshop have completely cornered the market in image manipulation. I mean, Photoshop is a household name. The way that that has happened is just because they've built a brilliant tool. And even though there are parts of it that are stupid and silly, like any other piece of software, uh, it holds up. And Lightroom is kind of that second coming, that other piece of software that does exactly what it's supposed to, and it's held up to it. And I feel like no one else... Um, is just interested in it. Everyone's shooting 8-bit. While more and more people are buying DSLRs, all of them are shooting in auto. All of them are shooting easy. When you look at, I think, a lot of the non-production-based consumer market, which, let's face it, I think that's where a lot of Canon and Nikon make their money, is from people who casually do photography and casually use their camera. So things like RAW just don't seem necessary, and all the pros have been using Lightroom and have been using Photoshop for such a long time. It doesn't make any sense. So what if you know uh iphoto doesn't support it or you know windows say windows ad support no one would care if windows added support for raw or anything like that in their file structure or anything they do like now that. actually um and just a side note not to derail you too far uh windows did mm -hmm. release a kodak pack um they started doing this about two years ago and i've been keeping track of it i posted it on the site every so often but uh their latest one was about what four or five months ago and it covered all new cameras to date if you installed this Windows 7 slash Windows 8 Kodak pack, which, mm -hmm. you know, I guess I'm not a Mac user, but apparently uh, Mac users have had native Kodak support internally to, yes. you know, to to Mac for years. Um, a few so, photographers brag about it. <laughs> so now it's native to Windows as well. And um, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But uh, that's a pretty handy thing for for people to to know about if you, especially if you just want to look at your photos and someone hands you a bunch but going uh, on absolutely but as as a primary windows user i think that adding raw i don't really know from that many pros who care about having codecs and having native support inside their operating system because at the end of the day they're only going to touch it if it's in their software i like opening and a folder software. though and you know in just being able to see sort of what they are occasionally. i don't argue that it's not nice i don't argue that at all i think that it's just uh it's not necessary Bro, for the pro, it doesn't necessarily change my workflow and it doesn't change my world. So it's irrelevant whether I'm on a system that has it or not. It's not like I care. Now, while we're talking about raw support, uh, do you convert to DNG or do you leave it in native Canon raw? Like you, oh, for uh, your photos. photos? Uh, with raw photos, no. I just leave it as is in the camera. I update my Lightroom so that my Lightroom can grab them if they need to, as well as my Photoshop. And a lot of the times, I'm just using Lightroom to process the raws and look at them and uh, delete what I don't want and see what I do need. Because Lightroom is incredibly fast. It works faster than it would be working through even Windows folders or anything like that. So it's just another argument that the only people who care uh, is such a small market because the pros – 
are just opening up their software anyways to look at their photos because they know the next step is editing and all the consumers aren't shooting raw. So there's just this gray area in between that I feel like nobody's really sitting in and nobody really cares. One, that could just be me. One really handy uh, property of Lightroom actually is a, a, a native uh, automatic DNG conversion. Um, mm-hmm. If you, there's just one click up at the top of the screen in Lightroom, you click on that and every photo is uh, converted from the native Canon RAW or Nikon RAW or what have mm-hmm. you into DNG format. And I didn't used to do it uh, way back in the day, but as I've moved forward, uh, a few times I've had to share my RAW files with other photographers or transfer stuff around in mm-hmm. projects. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I can't open this or I can't get this or, you know, I can't figure out how how to get to this. And if you always work in DNG, which is an open format, then anybody and their brother can open it up or find a file form or, you know, a program that will open it up. And it's so simple and easy and does nothing to your raw files. When you convert, it's just, uh, to me, it's become like, I don't know if I want to say no brainer cause it's not necessary, but it's not so difficult oh, right. as to make it something that I wouldn't do normally, you know? And that's, and I have used that before, especially with the Panasonics. They always seem late to be updated into yeah. the Adobe workflow. I first got my GH3 and nothing could open the raw files. So once Adobe got updated and I started sending my files to other people, I noticed the problem right away. And I, and that's one of the strengths of Adobe is that uh, they're supporting the open formats, not just DNGs for photography, but also your uh, Avid codecs for video editing. Uh, being able to, when somebody needs a master file or something like that, render out as a... That one uh, you actually have to Avid think file. Avid for. Um, the DNX HD Kodak. We're opening uh, it up. Yeah, yeah, they've opened it up uh, in the past. In the old days, they kind of um, kept that under their thumb. But now that it's kind of become a an open, available Kodak, it's it's pretty nice. I've think, actually started using it more than I I would have otherwise. Yeah, I think that Avid, uh, with their new media composer updates and everything else, have realized, hey, there's a lot of money to be made in the like semi-professional prosumer market and i think that they're smart in taking their software bringing it down to a price point where other people can start considering it next to adobe or even having both packages depending on if they're a full-time editor and they need to work with multiple different collaborators and i think that's smart and opening up their format just means more people are going to use their technology which means more people are going to know their name and more systems are going to work with it and it goes back to the shogun and everything else that uh they're the ones unlike apple ProRes, and everything else who are looking to try to further the market forward and they're going to then be looked at as the people who are pulling the market forward as opposed to apple which after final cut pro hasn't been doing anything really to push the market forward now speaking of prosumer equipment according to tech report seiki the famous company for making 4k monitors that were three or four hundred dollars is now going to be releasing 60 hertz panels in the first quarter of 2015 if you remember back to 2014 seiki had some 42 inch some 39 inch and some 50 some odd inch monitors Mm -hmm. but they were all locked in at 30 hertz people were using them but for gaming 30 hertz is just not enough and even for regular desktop applications your mouse feels like it's kind of chugging across the screen but these new 60 hertz Mm. panels as opposed to being tn panels these are going to be va panels uh, which is pretty much i don't want to say equivalent to ips but it's one of the variants of ips so you get better color resolution better off angle access and the rumors are saying that these are going to be uh a 12 or 14 bit color spaces with a, um, a 96 or 97% uh, Adobe RGB support. So 
that's a really sexy monitor for what uh, Tech Report's saying is going to be in the $600 range. Oh, yeah. If the rumors are true, uh, this is going to be great for editors and photographers, other people who, um, you know, uh, color correctors for everybody, and especially at that price point, too. You can tell that they're trying to shake up the market. I I really feel, too, the 4K monitors at 30 hertz was just marketing. It was just something out there to make a little bit of money to hold people over till they could pro- give a proper 4K at 60 hertz. Because I even look at videos now, and whether or not you agree with it, videos going to 60p as well. Uh, YouTube videos now are just natively streaming 60p when available. Um, which hey, I know I've always more- been on the high frame rate bandwagon. I know I usually stand <laughs> alone in that category. People tell me I'm a blasphemer that I don't like 24 but i love shooting at higher frame rates no and and whether or not you know the film image the re look whatever you want to call it you ignore all that for a second and you just think about uh, how people consume media and you know there's a reason why 30p looks great and people love it when they're watching news when they're watching sports and everything else and how many people would love to watch the super bowl at 60p and looking at 4k on a 60p monitor if there was such a broadcast you know that that would sell 4k sets and i feel like along with 4k frame rates are going to start to increase especially after 4k no one's going to tell the difference let's be honest 1080p and 4k is already pretty marginal as it is unless you're right up against the tv so i feel like this is a proper 4K monitor. This is going to really change things too, because this kind of technology would normally be way outside of anyone actually owning it. You know, you'd get this installed in a studio or something like that. So this is very ex- exciting, especially to have that IPS technology. I've never been crazy about, you know, quote unquote, the low frequency. Everyone argues about uh, lower milliseconds and stuff. And I go, you know what? Technology's gone so far with displays. There's no longer any ghosting. And as long as there's no ghosting, it looks fine to me. You do run uh, into a little bit of issue when you start uh, getting closer to the 30 hertz range. I just picked up a brand new uh, editing laptop and mm-hmm. the 4K panel in there is actually locked in at 48 hertz. And mm-hmm. that's not an issue for editing, but when you start gaming, instead of you know running up against the limit of your graphics card, yeah. you're running up against the frequency limit of the screen itself because the 970 uh, GTX 970 that's in there, it's pretty well compatible to uh, say GTX 680 from last year, or the year before. That's a pretty powerful uh, graphics processor, but it can't go to mm-hmm. you know 60 or 70 frames a second because the monitor doesn't support it. Well, I feel like inherently that's that unfortunately has a lot to do with the way that the games are programmed because they're expecting 60. Uh, it's like when video games end up on TVs uh, for Xboxes and stuff like that. Uh, they add motion blur. That's the way that they make 30p look appropriate because 30p is still kind of under, you know, we'd still consider it stuttering if there wasn't some kind of motion blur to it. And 24 would really look like a stuttery mess if we didn't add motion blur to it. So I can definitely understand gaming at 48 frames would really look bad if the game designers didn't put in a way to add that motion blur to kind of make it feel like there's smoother motion happening on it. You definitely would be playing it at the professional level, as I know people demand that they have 120 hertz monitors because for them that gives them that competitive edge or the new sexy variable frame rate monitors that don't care (laughs) what frame rate is coming at you it just goes to that and in order to keep up with the gpu's maximum frame rate acceleration that's magic as far as i'm concerned i know i'm really excited is no longer a thing the fact that v-sync isn't even necessary and the monitor just does whatever you tell it to Mm -hmm. that's just 
black magic right there. Uh, one other thing I will mention, I've been editing on a 4K panel for a while. I do not do color correction on it, but I have one of those uh, Samsung 28-inch 4K panels that were released mm-hmm. earlier this year. It is 60 yeah. hertz. Um and I do find the 4K real estate to be the most useful f- for editing, mostly because I can have a full 1080p window open in the corner and still have plenty of room for a timeline, my preview window, and all my effects and everything else, all my assets, without having to you know, move things around or have a second panel or something like that. But 28 inch is not quite big enough for 4k in my opinion for editing and the reason i say that is because i have to set the uh, accessibility mode the handicap mode for windows to 150 percent just to read text Ooh. on the screen yeah and, and so uh, that part's an issue then you run into mm-hmm. uh, parts where you're working on something and it doesn't recognize the 150 percent magnification setting and so then you're looking at it in native dpi which means i have to put my glasses on and like <laughs> get up against the monitor a lot of magnifying glass and Try to read what the flip the exactly. Yeah. What's really exciting for me is that Seiki um, they had a 42 inch panel uh, in their last year's offering, and I'm hoping that their 4K panels are in the 39 to 42 inch this year. Because if they do, I would immediately ditch my 28 inch 4K panel for a larger format 4K panel just for the DPI reduction, so that I'm not squinting and and you know like trying mm-hmm. to very hard look very hard at the monitor i'm working on a 2560 by 1440 panel right now and that one's even it's right on the borderline of you know almost having to go up to 125 percent to read everything and maybe i'm wrong Mm -hmm. i don't know what do you think uh for me you know what i've been i i had a 4k monitor at 28 inches and as much as i love that extra real estate because it basically meant multi-monitor wasn't necessary anymore with all those pixels on screen uh but i threw that out and i uh i returned it i went ahead and just got a a basic 48 inch uh, ips that is 1440p like you said 2560 by 1440 and that to me being about a foot and a half away because i do a standing desk i'm one of those weird guys so but being that close to the monitor i can see everything the details great i can work natively without using handicap mode to pump a punch up the text and i feel like with two of those i'd be made in terms of having enough real estate to get all my editing done and see all my assets at the same time and not be sitting here playing around with a bunch of windows um I think what you're saying is the right answer. Having 4K as a computer monitor at something that you're looking at past 32 inches, somewhere maybe 36 inches or something like that. Then I look at 4K and I go, man, that'd be one massive monitor on my desktop, and that would probably work. I don't need to do multi-monitor. There's no bevels or anything like that to worry about, and I can get all the detail I need out of the image and not sit here and deal with the gripes of you know trying to use an operating system you know, in a box, in a tiny little you know, box that you're trying to read with a magnifying glass. Cause I, I couldn't put up with that for a week before I returned it. Now the other sexy monitor, uh, trend that's kind of starting to happen now is that whole 21 by nine monitor setup. Uh, LG and HP have some 34 inch monitors that are, are, I believe they're 1440 by 3440. So it's basically mm-hmm. like cinema screen, 4k ultra wide yeah Yeah. so then and you know i don't know if i need this or not and i haven't talked myself into it so obviously i don't but having (laughs) that wide of an area means that you can really you know 
extend your timeline and make it as big as you want and, oh, yeah. and have a ton of timeline space to work with. Now, no, no. I was talking to somebody about this earlier and the conversation kind of went like, well, I want to make my timeline as big as possible. And then I thought, wait a minute, how big a project are you working on? And their response was three minutes. And I'm like, well, <laughs> do you need that big of a timeline for three minutes? You know, do you need to zoom in all the time? Can you not use the plus and minus key? So I don't really know if that 21 by nine is going to be the thing or not. Uh, you know what? I think that it is. Even if you only have a three-minute project, everyone's workflow is differently. But I think even if you only have a three-minute project, it's uh, being able to have a timeline that big. Uh, three minutes in that size means that you don't have to zoom in for anything. You can l probably almost click frame for frame for all your edits. Uh, I still think there's times where you have to zoom in and stuff like that. But having more access to more of your timeline is always a good thing. I don't even care though about that i think that an ultra wide means i'm getting two monitors without a bezel as one display it's simpler uh, i don't have to worry about maximizing windows across different displays and stuff like that or stretching stuff over it just works and that's the part that i find exciting having something around 4k as an ultra wide i think is really going to start becoming a solution for a proper editor with uh you know who's doing it for a living and it needs all that kind of real estate uh i think they're sexy i've used a few of them i've seen the curved ones and everything else i'm not so sure about the curve thing i don't think it's that big of a deal but some people like it but an ultra wide isn't it's not just the resolution it's the fact that horizontally you're getting so many pixels across that it makes your workflow easier and at the end of the day i think it's all about how do you make your job easier so that you can get it done faster well, where the curve is sexy is for gaming. If you oh, yeah. have the curve all the way around your head, <laughs> that is like full submersion, man. You are in the game. You can see as far as your peripheral vision will let you see. And I agree with that. It's sexy. And then when you combine that with 3D, it's unbelievable. I know. And I'm not, a, I'm not even a gamer. I don't, I don't game that much. But I watch somebody game and he's like, look at this. I don't ever have to turn my head again. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, I can see everything that's going on around me. And, I, you know, th that's a little intense. And then you end up with stuff like the devourer and the destroyer and stuff like that for mm. names. But I kind of want to have one just to play with it. Uh, I might try and uh, pick one up on a loner model or something like that so it's, I can review it's sexy. it. Those, those ultra-wide monitors for gamers are going to be the intermediary step between using monitors and using VR headsets. Eventually, we know it's all going to end up on a VR headset, but for a while in between there, I think those ultra-wide gamers are really falling in love with them. All right, moving on to discussion topics. Uh, first up I've got on here is rumors for 2015 NAB. Um, the big one that I've seen on multiple sites is uh, GH5, 8K offering with possible 60 frames per second at 4K. What do you think about that? I think a GH5 is in the works. I really don't think this rumor holds up anything. I haven't seen anything conclusive about it, and it's all rumors. I could be wrong, but for speculation... Um, it's possible, but I'd say with the way that Panasonic has their technology right now, 8K would probably have to be external recorded. It, they'd pull a Sony AFS where they advertise, hey, we could do this, and but you need to buy an external recorder like we talked about before. I think the memory constraints 
even for doing 8-bit, which I mean, you know, the 4K on the GH4 is 8-bit, but even doing 8-bit 8K requires such a fast memory card and everything else. I think you have to look at hard drives uh, and solid state drives. And I think that takes it out of the realm of doing it internally inside of a GH5. Now, but, what about uh, the new H.265 codec? Because uh, Samsung has integrated that into what? the I believe it's the N1 camera. And that means mm-hmm. uh, data rates at 4K of about half to two-thirds that of the 264 version. And that standard offers all the way up to 4K record or 8K recording. And the compression on that is almost one oh, for know. one with uh, 4K standards mm-hmm. right now on the GH4. Yeah, I, I think that if they were to use H.265, which I still, I don't know. This could be different for the year of 2015, but I really feel like um, uh, H.265 is still young, and it still is going to have a hard time finding itself inside of hardware. The first places it should find itself is in external recorders. Those are the kind of companies that can put in chips and not have to do a major redesign of their entire product to do so. But I could see the GH5 if it is using H.265 then doing 60 frames at 4K. I have a hard time believing that they're going to put uh, a sensor capable of 8K inside of that camera. Uh, just realistically speaking, without having a huge markup on price, and I think that Panasonic would be stupid to try to sell their DSLR line for the camera for three grand or more. So I, I do agree the GH4 is dropping in price, just like the GH3 was dropping beforehand too. We're probably going to see a GH5. They're pulling the Canon thing, but unlike Canon with the T2i, 3i, and etc., they're actually producing new features. So I'm sure something new will come, and it could be 60 frames at 4K. It, it could be H.265, uh, but I don't think it's going to be 8K. I think that's just outside of the realms of being realistic. My big fear of moving to H.265 is the same growing pains that started with H.265 about what six years ago maybe seven years ago back in 2007 or 2008 even if you had the latest uh quad core processor uh 2.4 or uh, 2.264 excuse me Uh, 2.64 the original would hit your computer like a log it it Mm -hmm. was hard to render you could almost not get real time there was tons of transcoding options going on at the time because uh, it was the Kodak flavor of the month and everybody was using it but it was so processor intensive that the computers of that era couldn't keep up with it well it seems like 265 we are starting to see it in a couple cameras the chips to do native 265 internally to a camera are only about 30 or 40 dollars additional price to the manufacturing of the camera themselves but the hardware that it takes on the back end to edit and process that footage uh, is exponential over H.264. Uh, you might end up seeing H.265 in a lot of cameras, but I'm wondering if we're going to end up back in that transcoding <laughs> phase of things where, oh, we got this H.265 file and now we're transcoding it to, you know, DNX HD or something like that in order to actually be able to work with it in post. You know, I really think that the future for that before processors catch on and we start dealing with octa-cores more often and things like that is is the GPUs, I feel like, are going to come to the rescue. NVIDIA's been working so hard uh, trying to get uh, basically their gaming cards to turn into rudimentary uh, GeForce um I'm struggling for the name oh, here. You're their talking about their Quadra series. series there. Yeah, their Quadra series, yeah. And I think that... Uh, 
these cards are going to be the ones that start including H.265 chips, where for a couple hundred bucks, you can throw in an H.265 chip that's going to do decoding on the fly and encoding on the fly with a little bit of help from the CPU. And I've already seen it used in so many impressive ways in the Adobe suite with the way that they use NVIDIA, and they started opening the door and allowing ATI to be used as well in the Adobe suite. I feel like all it would take is a few updates from software manufacturers like Adobe, and I'm sure the new hardware coming from NVIDIA next year will include H.265 on board. And I feel like those two properties are really going to turn this thing around and make it easy for us to start digesting these large kinds of files without needing to worry so much about the CPU, let the CPU do the heavy work. Uh, because they're already using H.264 for gamers. Uh, they, they use that onboard chip so that when you're playing Their a game, shadow cast system. It. Yeah, with yeah. the Shadowcast system, uh, they're using a coprocessor that's built specifically to handle uh, H.264 encoding. And so it takes your gameplay without loading down the GPU and actually offloads that to the coprocessor and creates the stream for your Twitch or what have you when you're recording your gameplay. Um, that's really a cool feature, and they've been including that since the... Uh, uh, GTX 660 Ti and above. Yeah, and I, oh, you yeah. know I run a a Titan on my main computer upstairs for editing, but uh, mm -hmm. the Titan is basically just a GTX uh, 780 Ti with a few extra um, processing mm -hmm. bits that are designed mostly for. Yeah, well, not even CUDA cores. I think they're almost identical in the CUDA core count. It's just that that one has the um, geometrics calculations for like mm. people who are doing like software and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah and uh, basically like school application type stuff. If you're doing like some kind of theoretical physics problem, you need to have that <laughs> much resolution in your calculations. Yeah. But otherwise, there's no reason to even get a Titan for most people. And the Quadra series, they really haven't been addressing that much. Those used to be five and six thousand dollar GPUs just for video editors, but now with the OpenGL technology, we see that the R nine two ninety X and the R nine two seventy and two eighty five, those are all almost starting to keep up with NVIDIA's uh, CUDA CUDA access and the OpenGL uh, because Mac has chosen to put that into their new towers as well as their MacBook Pros. Mm. That's kind of been a push for Adobe. I was talking to the Adobe rep at two thousand fourteen. NAB, and he told me that as fast as they can code something for OpenGL, they are simply because uh, OpenGL OpenGL means that they're coding for both platforms instead of just for CUDA. And the performance enhancements uh, speak for themselves when you work on you spend how much time you're going to sit oh, there rendering times, man. Together. Yeah. I and I, that's why I see it. Think about playing video games in 4K, which will be the future in 2015. Those 4K gamers are going to need H.265 to sit there and stream it, doing shadow play, recording it, streaming it to Twitch or whatever they're going to do. So I feel like H.265 is going to start showing up on graphics cards next year. And Adobe is going to be like, you bet, Joe, we're going to throw H.265 into our workflow for dealing with it that way. I still don't feel like H.265 was as big, going to be as big of a nightmare as H.264 was. But I think with a little bit of hardware and a little bit of programming, it's not going to really be that much of a halt for our production. And it's going to help to move things faster as we try to get to grips with 4K and higher resolution recording. Well, I don't know if you've uh, I've had much experience with it, but uh, there's a company called Java that makes um, several... <laughs> 
process encoders that mm -hmm. rely almost uh, 100% on GPU performance to encode and transcode video footage. And they were at the forefront of H.264 encoding back in the day. And they mm -hmm. also still offer up um, a really affordable uh, transcoder program for, I think, 30 bucks or 25 bucks. that is almost all GPU. And I've done rendering mm -hmm. tests on those. And we're talking four to six times uh, rendering gains uh, on any given project. And even just going from CPU bound to GPU bound in Premiere Pro, that's the same mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I was rendering a project on CPU only, and we're talking about an hour, 20 minutes. You switch over to GPU, and all of a sudden that project's rendering in like 18 to 20 minutes. It, that's uh, It's still a mm -hmm. long time, and it's less than real time, but that's a heck of a gain over simply CPU bound stuff. Absolutely. And I would love to see next year be the year that here we're throwing together all of this, uh, all this graphics capabilities, because you know what, it, because of the architecture, it can do it faster and the architecture can change faster and the architecture can adapt faster because CPUs have so many different applications they need to be ready for. They can never be purpose built and graphics cards have those capabilities. And we, we have motherboards that have pipelines that are way bigger than graphics cards could ever deal with. I feel like in the future, we're almost going to have two computers. We're going to have our basic operating computer with CPU, RAM and everything else. And then we're going to have a second computer we plug in that we do for editing and all the hardcore stuff and video games and everything else because graphic cards are just becoming a computer on their own with these gigantic pipes and these capabilities. Well, and hopefully um, APU technology picks up a little bit more in the next few years so that we have our CPU and our GPU all combined onto a single chip and we're not having to install and change out all this stuff oh, yeah. on a regular basis. <laughs> well, and that, that opens up the market for uh, editing laptops actually becoming proper workhorses where, hey, my entire editing suite fits in my backpack. Well, I'll I mean, tell you right now, on editing page. laptops, um, I, and in fact, this is a great transition, I just picked up uh, a MSI GS60, which is a GTX 970 GPU with a 16 gigs of RAM. It comes with a 128 gig SSD and a spinning Rust style one terabyte hard drive. Um, and the thing is also rocking a quad core i7 processor, uh, top of the line as far as they can fit into mobiles, and it's all within a 90 watt package so we're talking um a four pound laptop that's a 15.6 inch with a 4k display that's mm -hmm. pretty sexy for a tiny little editing laptop that is i'm i'm envious i'm very envious i of, uh, i just laptop. posted the review or the video actually the upgrade um yesterday uh for all the uh, memory yeah i totally tore apart my two thousand dollar laptop that i just <laughs> bought <new. laughs> voided the warranty and risked like and i lost a screw during the time i mean i found it again <laughs> but i don't know where the screw goes so there's an extra screw now but um i was able to tear the entire thing apart get to the m.2 slot and upgrade it and uh, for those of you out there there who are looking for an editing laptop the uh 3k variant of the gs60 is about two to three hundred dollars cheaper and i believe yeah. the frame rate on that is limited to 60 hertz as opposed to 48 so if I've, you do want a game that's a really good option I, i've actually been looking at that after you posted that not necessarily the 4k but the 3k i was looking at that being like ah that's well, a good price. Well, and if you really look at the really difference between going from the 3K to 4K, the uh, 512 gig M.2 hard drive was 260 bucks from Crucial, but you could have gotten it from Transcend for 
uh, I believe it was 220. So even mm-hmm. with the 512 gig M.2 upgrade, you're still less than the 4K variant. And that leaves you a little bit of playroom to upgrade it to, um, well, in my case, I put a, a one terabyte uh, 840 Evo in there. Now, one thing mm-hmm. I will note on the 840 Evo, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the 840 Evo had that huge issue about six months ago where they found out that if data sits on it for more than four months at a time, it gets stagnant and it causes the uh, buffer, the um, the write protection buffer to start running on all the data. Well, what happens is it ended up dropping your read speeds from that data to 60 meg a second, which is the maximum amount that that error correction algorithm can handle. So I heard about this. Yeah. yeah. If you have one of these um, there and there's a link on DSLRfilmnoob.com, uh, go check out uh, the Samsung 840 Evo uh, restoration program. It takes a little bit of time and you, you do want to back up your data. I mean, I, I was brave and did mm-hmm. it without backing up my data, but I don't <laughs> recommend doing that because if something goes sideways, you are rewriting the firmware to an SSD. And if power goes out or something goes wrong, uh, you could lose you everything. Destroy the SSD. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, make sure you think about that. But once you run the rest- restoration program, uh, data that sits on there for three or four months at a time no longer goes stagnant and you're still getting your max um, 500-ish Sweet. A meg read speed yeah Yeah. Uh, the other thing ridiculous read speed yeah well the other thing samsung offers that's really made them more attractive to me is they have an experimental mode that actually uses about two gig of your system ram as a read write buffer for the hard drive itself and if you do that you're able to achieve speeds write speeds and read speeds of almost a gig um both directions because it's using almost sheerly your ram and then writing to the ssd in the background and because your ram speeds are so high these days your Mm -hmm. your data throughput is really awesome and it's got some good queuing features as well that um basically search through commonly used files and load them up into ram so that they're ready to go for access so if you're working on a medium to smaller project it's constantly like seeing that you're using these files and loading them into RAM before you even hit play. And write speeds are the same way. The only issue is, uh, because it's held in RAM, if you lose power... You know, you, you could lose mm-hmm. a write uh, sequence. So I've only been using it on my laptops where I have a battery backup. I haven't been using it on my desktops. Right. But it's pretty sexy, especially if you want crazy fast write speeds and you want to try and do something like uh, SSD and RAID 0, you know. And Well, and everyone's, everyone's got extra RAM these days. I mean, like your laptop, did you buy the 12-gig uh, package? 16-gig. 16 yeah, gig. 16 gig package. Part of the reason why I put 16 gigs in my system was just so back in the day I could chop out a few gigs of it and turn that into a fake hard drive so that I could render to it and the renders will happen faster because of the that old drive. RAM disk. Course, yeah, the old RAM disk. But of course, you lose power on that, you lost everything. So <laughs> it's really fascinating the way that uh, people are finding ways to take this technology and just keep improving it by banking on other parts of the systems and uh it's little tricks like that that can really make a difference when you have a deadline all right last one before we move on to the pick of the week i've got the canon 7d mark ii uh the upgrades include uh 20 megapixel up from 18 uh basically the video formats and focusing system from the 5d mark iii uh 10 frames per second raw and jpeg format and the extra storage SD slash CF card options with GPS. Does that really make the 7D Mark II a compelling option to move forward? 
Uh, you know, for me, I'd say absolutely not. This is more of the same stuff that we've seen from Canon with incremental upgrades. If you're looking at a 7D, then yeah, I'd recommend it. Having that higher bitrate recording like you get with the 5D Mark III is a huge difference. But if you already own a 7D, and I think what's the going price for the 7D these days is still maybe 600 500 um, Yeah, it's, well, I think brand new, it's 699 so basically 700 But used, 700. You, can, you can pick one up for in the five dollars to $600 range really easy. Yeah, and I think that uh, it, that there's no good reason among this list to sit here and do an upgrade. And it's not like the aesthetics or anything else have changed with it. So if you're buying brand new, I could see the bit rates becoming important. Uh, but I wouldn't upgrade from a current 70 because I don't see much of a difference. I've been staring at it for a while, and the only real valid reason I can think of is that um, photographers who shoot sports as well as yeah, the uh, increase animals in FPS. and stuff. Well, yeah, the increase in FPS plus uh, something that um, a lot of people don't think about is that since it's a 1.6 crop, you're actually getting more reach out of your uh, 70 to 200 lens. So as an example mm-hmm. for a sports shooter, you're getting high frame rates, like high, high as in almost almost up to 1DC level, and you're also getting that extra reach that you wouldn't normally get out of a full-frame sensor. So then yeah. you're able to you know, get closer to the sports without having a bigger lens. You're able to get closer to the birds and wildlife without having a bigger lens. It, 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 that's the only reason I can see to move to a 70 Mark II. From, from a full-frame sensor. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, but, for the price, you might as well go pick up a 6D. They're down to um, $1,200. And I think the 70 Mark II is rolling out at $1,800 flat. So, Considering the kind of crappy situations that us videographers and filmmakers are put in, though, I feel like uh, that larger sensor and that lo- amazing low light that the Canon does on the 5D Mark III, while everyone's out bragging about the Sony right now, uh, I still feel like the Mark III just has this amazing low light capability as well as like the 6D and the money would be better spent on a camera that can perform well in extreme environments like that unless yes you're a photographer for sports or birds or whatever have you and you need that extra crop and you need that high frame rate and everything else that makes sense but I think for most video people uh, a different kind of camera makes more sense than the Mark II. Uh, LensRental.com did do a teardown on the uh, 70 Mark II body and they did say that it is one of the best sealed weather-wise cameras they've ever seen in their collection. So for what it's worth, I guess if you want to dunk your camera in the water or crawl around <laughs> in the mud, that might be an aspect. It's a rugged camera. It is a sports camera. At, at its heart, it's probably one of the best sports cameras out there. That can't be denied. Yeah, and I did uh, you know, honestly love the high frame rates I was getting out of my old 7D before I sold it off. And I do mm-hmm. still enjoy the high frame rates I get out of the uh, G- GH4. Um, one defense oh, yeah. I will throw in for the Sony A7S, you've, <laughs> you've thrown a couple digs at it, but um, I sold off one of my 5D Mark III's and used this uh, A7S on a regular basis. And I have, um, other than menu systems, I have no complaints. Uh, yeah. The menu systems on all but, Sony's cameras are dumb at the best of times, <laughs> but at least... But you're, you're enjoying that with a, with a lens adapter, aren't you? With a, uh, yeah, I'm using a, or a ton like of that? my Canon glass. Um, I'm actually, uh, here in the next month or so, I'm going to start uh, experimenting with some Minolta glass i have the sony la ea4 adapter which is uh basically Mm -hmm. it's the e mount to a mount adapter Mm -hmm. and so it allows you to use all of the uh a999 uh lenses as well as any of 
all of the old autofocus Minolta lenses from the 90s to the early 2000s. And you can pick up, uh, and I actually had this as a side note, you can pick up the old Minolta lenses, the 28 to 70 F2.8. Uh, you can get that for like $300 or $400. And it's fully functional, 100% compatible, as long as you have this uh, uh, EA4 adapter for your A7S. Uh, so mm -hmm. those Minolta lenses, like the 51.4 and the uh, 24.14 and some of the other ones, are really sexy looking for their price range. I, I'm, I'm just saying you might be a little biased because you have a very nice piece of glass in between all of your nice Canon lenses and your Sony camera. I feel like without that accessory, you might have a different opinion about mm -hmm. the Sony if you had to deal with that um, uh, without those electronics and everything working. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> and I also I own a lot of L glass, so I yes, almost <laughs> always put that in front of my uh, my Sony cameras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I even I just uh, finished messing around with this morning the um, Metabones uh, speed booster adapter for the GH4, and I've been playing around with Canon lenses on on that as well, and um, mm -hmm. it's pretty decent. It's not quite what I was expecting, but. It's really handy with like the 51.4 and the uh, 85.18 because both of mm -hmm. those are smaller format lenses. And with the speed booster, you're getting what, roughly like a, a 75 ish, 80 ish equivalent on the yeah. 50 and, you know, a 120, 130 ish equivalent on the 85. So then you basically have filled in the, um, the, uh, the low edges. light performance for your edges yeah. for what's available in the already pretty decent line of GH4 lenses. Yeah. And I, the, the GH, uh, the Luminex Panasonic lenses, however you want to call them, because I guess they're not really Luminex or whatever, but the, the, that series of lenses uh, really is sharp, great contrast, really fantastic workhorse of lenses that people don't give enough credit for um, because everyone likes their L series glass. Yeah, I, I honestly, when I sold off my uh, C100, I ended up picking up an entire uh, set of lenses for the GH4 as well as the GH4. And then I sold off one of my 5D Mark III's to pick up the A7S. So um, I've been pretty happy with both of them. I still use my 5D Mark III, despite people's complaints about it being mushy and not having enough resolution. I feel like the color science... And the mm -hmm. the way that it generates an image in the 5D Mark III is a little bit superior to the GH4. But it, honestly, for uh, ease of use and uh, carrying stuff into you know remote locations, um, over the last five months, I've been missing and I've been shooting in California at the hatcheries mm -hmm. and at the dams. And um, a lot of times you have to like scale up to the top of a dam on stairs or you have to crawl back into this brush to get to a hatchery area and, and carry all your gear with and you. carry all your gear. So I unless it was required for low light or, you know, if I was doing something where I really needed shallow depth of field, I would just grab the GH4, throw it in my kit and, you know, shooting wide open at F1.8 on a lot of these lenses, you really end up shooting at about F4, which is just about right for, you know, getting yep. some coverage of stuff and like not having to carry a giant heavy freaking bag all the way into that section. <laughs> absolutely all right so we've covered quite a bit in this last hour and 16 minutes i'm going to <laughs> finish this up with the pick of the week uh just give me a piece of equipment that's really made your life a, a better place to be with uh filming and whatnot this this week 
You know what? I'll tell you, uh, it's not a piece of equipment. It's actually a service. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went on a shoot uh, in Gary, Indiana, uh, doing a pitch video for a possible uh, zombie series. And borrowlenses.com is just a fantastic service. Uh, a lot of the rental houses around Chicago, we've got lots of uh you know, houses and recommendations and all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, I compared all the prices and they were all comparable, but borrow lenses. I didn't have to drive anywhere. I didn't have to worry about when they were open or anything like that. And they were competitively priced. I borrowed, um, some Canon cine glass. I borrowed, uh, an ES speed booster from Metabones and everything else, all competitively priced Threw it on my camera. The glass came in totally clean and arrived right on time. And I shipped it out and everything with it was just so fantastic. It made my life so much easier. It really is a fantastic service to get what you need for that quick weekend of shooting. Um, or even to, to play with equipment. I've started using them in order to just be like, oh, I want to try out this camera. I'll rent it for the weekend it'll cost me next to nothing uh, just to become accustomed with new equipment and things like that. And it's really helped to push my production further. Yeah. Those guys do a great job. I've honestly <laughs> rented quite a bit from them in the past when there's some special item I need that I don't want to own. Oh, um, and the selection's huge. Oh, I'm, man. I'm tired of going to a rental house being like, Hey, I need to pick up a C300 for this weekend. And they're like, Nope, we don't got any I'm like, all right, I guess I'll take a C100 then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, so. th they're great. Uh, and actually, their packaging and, and their reminders and their extended rental program is pretty nice as well. If you keep an eye out, too, they have 25% uh, and 30% discounts on a regular basis over Christmas and New Year's and Black Friday and so on. And those Which aren't necessarily that you have to use them during that time. But if you reserve your items during that time, you still get the discount. So keep that in mind if you have a project coming up. Um, and those discounts are a great excuse to try out new equipment. Yeah. Also, you know, this podcast has no sponsors right now, borrowlenses.com. <laughs> so if you'd like to throw some Absolutely. money our way, we would love to hear it. Um, anyway, my pick <laughs> of the week is the uh, Veravon GH4 cage i just reviewed this on dslrfilmnoob.com it is a very decently priced uh, gh4 cage and as a gh3 owner you know that the camera is extremely small well the gh4 is pretty much the same deal and although i do love the compact size it's always really nice to be able to mount monitors and audio gear and everything else to it and if you check out that review um there are little bits that I've added to it, including these thumb screw quarter 20 to cold shoe adapters that are nice and mm -hmm. handy. And uh, having, you know, I, I complain about Juice Link a lot because I dislike their thumb knobs on all their devices and the fact that mm. they don't include a manual and that yeah. they're fairly complicated for the novice and end user in general to use. Um, mm -hmm. But they do provide really good audio. And if you look at the pictures of that unit, I was able to fit uh, the Juice Link uh, RM333 onto the top handle without eating up too much handle space. That gives you three XLR inputs into the GH4 uh, from the top handle so it's out of the way and you're able to uh, hook up lavs, hook up um, a boom mic if you really needed to you can beam mm -hmm. audio in wirelessly and it's really a pretty it's tough yeah it makes it really nice for mounting for holding on to and running around with and i've actually found myself uh, shooting a lot of 4k with the gh4 and then just cropping in post and mostly because i'm lazy and i want to do <laughs> you know some image stabilization here and there 
um, I have been oh, running yeah. into a little bit of issue with the uh, uh, 30 FPS and motion blur um, doing um, uh, image stabilization. But if you plan for it ahead of time, you can usually still get away with it in most cases. And I found the GH4 is good up to ISO 1600 without running into too much of an issue by the time you've uh, scaled down your 4K footage. So that's also a bonus. Oh, yeah. You have anything else to add? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to agree with you because I've used that cage on one occasion, and uh, and it's it's absolutely tough, especially if you're doing a smaller package. If you're already doing a shoulder rig with a bunch of other crap on in the map box, it doesn't matter. But if you're running around doing a quick shoot and you just want to attach, a, you know, an ENG wireless receiver or something like that, it's great to just sit there and mount these little things on there on this cage, as well as having you know a proper place to kind of loop your HDMI cables through so they don't you know flip out on their own and do all that kind of stuff. It really is a solid piece of hardware. Yeah, one one and well, the main complaint I had with it is only that uh, they did not do proper calculations on their powder coating. Uh, when they powder coated the aluminum, the one I got, the uh, aluminum powder coating was so thick that the top handle would not slide in properly. So that ended up <laughs> requiring some sandpaper and some elbow grease in order to correct. Not a huge issue, but somewhat mm-hmm. of an issue for a device that you're spending, I believe it retails for about uh, 260 bucks. So keep that in mind yeah. if you're picking one up. Um, now that B&H sells them, I believe they've corrected that problem and if you go to bnh they have an excellent return policy so um, it might behoove you to select it from bnh or uh, someone else with a good return policy like adorama as opposed to getting it off of ebay for 10 or 15 dollars cheaper uh, simply because of the hassle and b stock that you may end up with absolutely yeah all right well where can people find you on the internet devin uh they can find me at uh, devin hansen.me dv me. that's where i post little bits of my work and little things that I'm working on and stuff like that. Uh, you can also find me uh, on Facebook as Devin Hansen as well. Unfortunately, I don't have much of a website or anything organized right now as I'm busy in pre-production and too many projects, but uh, hopefully coming up here, there's going to be um, quite a lot of stuff that uh, I'll be able to talk about. Welcome to the club, man. I have two feature-length films in the can that I'm finishing up audio production for right now. And boy, does it suck. Yeah. (laughs) No, you know, everybody's like, oh, man, filmmaking's great. But you know what my favorite part of filmmaking is? Being done with filmmaking. You know, when you're completely done, like doing the project's great. Editing sucks and then being done with the project's great. So yep. I'm and in the production sucks. Yeah, I'm in the kind of crummy part right now. But uh thanks for showing <laughs> up today, fun. man. I had a great time talking to you. Uh 